this is Kenny Aronson, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Richie Wise from Dust, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everybody, this is Marky Ramone, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. They definitely do. Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I am your host, John, coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 195, we're going to take a very deep look at a band that was around in the very early 70s. Uh, it was a power trio uh, comprised of Richie Wise, Kenny Aronson, and the man who we now know as Marky Ramone. Uh, they put out two albums. Uh, they kind of got lost in the you know the early shuffle. Didn't get a lot of records company support at the time, uh, but those albums are being reissued this April uh, through Sony Legacy. So we thought we would take and have a chat with each of the members of the band who've all gone on to do some pretty amazing things with their career. So we're going to get started. We're going to talk to Richie Wise. Richie Wise, uh, who was the guitar player in the band, went on to produce a couple of really really. Uh, big acts including Gladys Knight and the Pips and one of my favorite bands of all time uh, Kiss he produced uh, the first couple albums from the band Kiss so we're going to talk to Richie Wise get his take on the band Uh, before we do let's have a little sample of Dust then we'll talk with Richie Welcome to the show, Richie Wise. How you doing, Richie? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me, man. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, coming in the month of April, uh, mid-month, you guys will be seeing the re-release of Dust's first and only two albums uh, will be coming out, uh, seeing the light of day after, uh, what has it been, probably 41 years since their original uh, pressing. That's sort of miraculous, you know? Yeah. Forty one years like the snap of a finger, boom, there it is. There did you want to you know, talk a little bit about your me- your memories of, you know, that time in your life and in that part of your career a little bit? Sure, sure. Uh I gotta tell you, we were from Brooklyn and uh, pretty much for me and uh I guess for a lot of people around the country, the uh, the, the Beatles just uh, knocked me on the head. And uh, from from that moment, I guess, uh, Ed Sullivan, you know, February 64, mm-hmm. uh, I was still a young kid, but there was no doubt that uh, music was going to be uh, my thing, the only thing. 
and it basically over the next few years completely took over my life and uh i mean because of uh, george no question about it him starting the whole ball rolling i said i have to play guitar and that's when i started probably around 13 or 14 years old and uh, i remember my first guitar was a uh, i had to have a gretch and uh went out and uh my parents were very into whatever I was into, I suppose. Mm. And they got me a, a, I had a glitch check and hollow body. That started it all. You know, not the, not the uh, guitar I ended up playing in dust was sure. not what I became. But at first it was uh, a real cool guitar. I was left-handed. Still am left-handed. Okay. So it was not easy getting guitar. We ordered that guitar and... Uh, uh, it took about six months for Gretsch to make it, but what a thrill when I got it. And with, with uh, Fender Vibrolux Reverb, man, I was a rock star at 14, you know? Yeah, yeah, but just to have, <laughs> it, have that in your hands must have been a real thrill. Yeah, but... Oh, man, yeah. But you know what? There were a number of guys in the neighborhood that started playing guitar. In fact, uh, my friend, there was a, and, and, and early on, the, all of us became very hip to what was going on. And, uh, for all of us, the influence was the, the British bands. Sure. And in the late 60s, uh, I mean, as far as my life was concerned, all there were were these British bands. And uh, we lived and breathed them. Uh, we thought, we, we hung out at a place called Parkside Avenue where there were a lot of musicians. Also a lot of leftovers from the 50s, do-up kind of guys. But uh, we hung out and there was a candy store there and they brought in, uh, they always had Melody Maker magazine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were hearing and reading about everything early on. Uh, all of us got our influence from, from from those bands. And one of the guitarists that I just mentioned from the neighborhood, uh, he had a bass player, uh, and that turned out to be Kenny Aronson. And uh, I think I first saw Kenny playing in that band. I had started bands uh, probably around 16 uh, years old, and pretty much maybe six months in, we started calling it Dust. And uh, by 69, I suppose, uh, the three of us, you know, various, uh, you know, various configurations with me, different drummer, different bass players, different lead singers. Mm-hmm. But eventually by 69, it was uh, me, Kenny, and uh, and Marky, who was Mark Bell to us, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was just the three of us were so in sync. There was just nothing, nobody else that was, that had... I guess advanced like we had. The, there were other players around, but we just had that those blinders on and that one thing that we wanted to play, this British type rock and roll. But I guess it all got fused and, and sort of assimilated and it comes out, you know, it comes out like your own thing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, I, I could look back and hear certain influences, of course, but when we finally did put it together and it was just the three of us, uh, I got to tell you, we, I would write most of the songs with uh, my partner Kenny Kerner, who was like the band's manager early on, okay. and still is very active in music today. Absolutely. And we would, I would bring them in the riffs, the uh, the rhythm parts, the the vibes and stuff, and it was sort of like instantaneous that Mark and Kenny would put their stamp on it. I never remember really working things out that we had to figure out what we wanted to do on it. It was mm-hmm. all so natural. And I think the thing I get mostly from it is all of us were living and breathing at 24 hours a day. That's all we did was music. Right. And for the three of us, we wound up exactly, exactly the same place, the same influences. And then with the band, it was just a, a, a matter of just playing, and we played 
I mean, we rehearsed in Mark's basement for 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 a while there. We were, we were we had to be the loudest band in the history of the world. Yeah, and I think we were. I really think we were. I I I, I don't think there was a band louder. And I'll go uh, to to some of the. There were a couple of American bands that were supposed to be real loud at the time, like Blue Cheers, but. Uh, I thought we were we, we were louder than everybody. Just the nature of the way we played. Mark was incredibly aggressive. So was Kenny, and so was I. Yeah, I know. And speaking with Kenny, is he mentioned when you guys got in advance to get some gear? You know, the massive amount of, of speakers he went after, and Mark getting uh, you know the biggest bass drum he could get, and yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you talked a little bit about Kenny uh, and your relationship with Kenny. Obviously, you know, transcended dust. Um, was this kind of Kenny's first foray into music, or, or how did you guys kind of hook up with him as a manager? Uh, Kenny was... I first met Kenny uh, very early on. Uh, I had a friend who turned out to be a very crazy guy, and I mean that in the clinical sense. Mm-hmm. But he had a copy, a single of the Rolling Stones, Not Fade Away. And if you know Brooklyn apartment buildings, they all have fire escapes. Well, he took his record player and put it on the fire escape and started blasting basically for 24 hours until the cops came over and over again, this single of the Rolling Stones not fade away. And that friend, Roger, had a friend, Kenny Kerner, and they were talking about starting a band. Okay. And they knew, and Roger knew that I played guitar. And... uh Pretty much immediately, uh, me and Kenny Kerner and Roger met. I knew a drummer named Anthony, uh, who still is my dear friend today, and uh, the original drummer of Dust. And basically, the three of us, we, we then got a bass player, a, a local kid who later on became uh, an amazing guitar player, and then went on to have, I think, worked for about 25 years at BMI. Okay. You know the music thing. All of us were just music crazy people. We couldn't do anything else. Yeah. And that's where I'm. And that's where I met Kenny. But it was obvious right off the bat that Kenny had more of an inkling to management type of attitude than actually being in a band. Mm-hmm. So Kenny, pretty much, uh, Kenny Kerner stopped at that point being in the band, and became our manager. And, uh, and my dear friend, uh, he was also a couple years older okay. than the rest of us, so he also had that. Even though it's two, three years, it's like this, yeah. uh, you know, more know-it-all kind of uh, figure. And he did. And then he got a job at Cashbox Magazine. I mean, he was like the only one of us working. I mean, we were all just playing music, still in school. I mean, uh, in 69, Mark and Kenny were still in high school. I mean, I think I had left high school, but uh, was finished with high school. But the uh, but me and Kenny became very close. And when, when I started writing songs... Uh, he had a real flair. He loved Dylan and Keith, Keith Reed, who was the lyricist for all the Proco Hound stuff. And we just started writing together. I would bring in songs. I mean, songs we used to flow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. We, uh, you know, two, three a day we could write, and some of them were actually decent. Yeah. And uh, and then as as time went on, I mean, every every three months you would uh, throw out the old songs and have new songs. And as the bands progressed. Uh, we went through different phases, and it got lighter and it got heavier. But it, but basically, it pretty much always started getting heavier, faster, and louder. And by the time uh, Dust, I mean, by the time we did the two albums, there was a variety of material that we had that we liked because of all the different influences. But live, Dust was 
really just one thing, and that was just super exhale, I like yeah. to say it. You know, not a whole lot of inhale, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know? Yeah, with the, with the volume you guys play that. Um, right. Now, obviously, Dust, um, you know, had some success around the country, but, um, you know, as as Mark had said when, when we spoke to him, you know, it was a little bit of, you know, maybe the record company um, didn't give it the push, and you guys called it a day in 72. Um, what did you, what did you kind of do? Obviously, I, I think most people are familiar with your work with Kiss. How did you, you know, go from being the musician in Dust to you know the producer of you know what turned out to be pretty historic records. Yeah, well, you know the interesting thing was uh, I'll get to that in a sec, but uh, I produced records for probably uh, close to thirty years. Mm-hmm. In that thirty years, I did about seventy albums, uh, and uh, early on we had some incredible success with some hits. Me and Kenny stayed friends and started producing. Sure. Uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny Kerner, uh, and uh, but what what happened was, uh, you know, the lifestyle that one must lead being in a rock band right. uh, suited Mark and Kenny Aronson a lot more than me. I got married in '72, and the band never there was never a phone call to Mark or Kenny, or from Mark or Kenny uh, right. that dust is over. Mm. It just it just fizzled and, and ended. Right. But the second album that we did, Heart Attack, was perceived by the record company to be very well produced because we had uh, added uh, a string section and pianos and things that uh, were pretty unique for a rock band who live was just three super loud instruments, you know? Sure. Uh, and uh, the record company allowed us to start going in with uh, different acts uh, into the studio. And pretty much right out of the gate, we had some success. I mean, early on, I mean, at the end of 72, there was no more dust, but by the summer of 73, we had, Kenny and I had produced uh, a record that became number one, a song called Brother Louie. Mm-hmm. song that went, Louie, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. And that was like right out of it, six months after we started producing. Uh, before that, we actually had a, a record that went to the top, uh, maybe top 30 on Billboard, a single by a band. And, uh, you know, this would be a real trivial, weird one, a little group called Gun Hill Road. Okay. But they had a nice hit single. So right out of the gate, we were producing some good stuff, uh, thanks to the record company. They did nothing for Dust, but at least saw some ability in Kenny and myself, Kenny Kerner and myself, uh, to to produce records. Uh, Right after that, uh, by the end of, by by the end of 73, we had produced... uh, one of one of the great albums, I think, still to this day, the Imagination album, Gladys Knight in the Pits, mm-hmm. included some amazing songs like uh, Midnight Train to Georgia and Imagination, Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me. What a, what an amazing album. And then, right after that, when Neil Bogart was starting Casablanca Records, we got to, it, it, into doing Kiss. So here I was with Kenny, and we produced some big R&B records and also had... Uh, Kiss. Yeah. So it was like it was just like a strange mix of of stuff. But to us, it was just like, hey, go in the studio and try to make some some records, you know. And I think I always had the uh, ability to take a blank piece of tape, and boy, did I love blank pieces of tape. Yeah. And uh, back in that day, you know, prior to all the digital world, 
and, uh, you know, being able to fill it up with some stuff. And I always prided myself in never having a lack of ideas of what to do to try to enhance the song or, or do this or try to make the arrangements better or add this flair or that flair or work with guitar players on solos. And, uh, you know, for me personally, uh, being in the studio with a lot of acts allowed me to meet so many musicians who played sure. guitar a lot better than I did. And uh, But... Uh, you know, so it, it was it was a great vehicle for me. And again, like I mentioned earlier, the lifestyle was different. It was more Absolutely. a nine to five lifestyle. Even though the nine might be nine at night to five in the morning, it was still more of a you go home kind more of a lifestyle. Absolutely, so it was more of a routine than than being in a rock band on the road and living that 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 life. So for me, it suited me better. And, yeah, and, and eventually, you know, and that led to. I produced records for about a dozen years with Kenny, and then I went on and was A and R and uh, and did uh, production work for a lot of stuff on movies and TV. I worked for a record company in LA for about 15 years, and that was just an incredible uh, situation. Yeah, let me ask you this question. It's always it's it's fun to talk to producers. If you if you had any technology at your disposal and and could make an album today using anything that you've used in your career, would you tend to go back uh, to the nostalgia of the tape world or, or would you, you know, latch on to the newest of Pro Tools and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, you know, uh, all my favorite records, not 90%, not 95%, but 100%, mm-hmm. all of them, all of them were made on analog tape. And many of them were probably made on four tracks at eight tracks. Yeah. Or sixteen tracks or either you know, or getting up to twenty four or even syncing two twenty four track machines together as we started doing late, a little later on. But uh all of them were made that way. I have this discussion with, with friends that are that object that are masters at pro tools and masters at technology. The thing back then is the music really lived. Yeah. The tape was a storage medium. If Pro Tools was a storage medium, so be it, that'd be great. But it's not a storage medium per se. It's a medium that allows you to manipulate beyond anything that was cl- a million miles more manipulation that you could do back in 1975. Sure. That manipulation changes the way records are made to the point of if you don't fix something, then you're sort of like not doing your job. Yeah. Because it can be fixed. Back then, I mean, listen to the records that we loved that had so many mistakes. Yeah, and that you know, gives a whole care. lot of love. Whole lot of love hearing, you know, hearing uh, the other vocal going. You know, during the way down inside, you hear his original tracking vocal in the back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could point out hundreds of hundreds of mistakes and tempo mistakes, and I mean, one of the great Rolling Stone records of the early days, "Time Is on My Side," has one of the probably the most uh, out-of-beat tambourine track in the history of the world. <laughs> but who cares? Yeah. The you content, know. the song, the attitude is absolutely undeniable. 
And it's that, the way music lived, and the way tape was only there to capture. Yeah. Yes, we did edits. Yes, we fixed. But it was, and mixes were performances with yeah. people's hands on the consoles. And, and it was, so you, you, you can't talk to me as somebody, like, listen, I was there and I saw everything. I, I, I produced records until around the year 2000. That's when mm -hmm. I left the music business. I have to say, I saw every piece of gear right when it was introduced, brought into the studio. Right. From, from the very first emulators to the first machines that were able to sample stuff to when people started programming stuff on, on computers and bringing them in to the digital tape world before there was really digital uh, storage or hard drives and stuff like that. And to all that I saw that all brought in. Uh, and I, didn't, I don't think any of that stuff made for better records than... Listening yeah. to the old, you know, give me. I rather listen to Axis Bold as Love any day of the week. Yeah, and that's a great point you bring up about how, uh, you know, when you look at it like a Pro Tools, uh, where it's it's become almost a, I don't want to call it an instrument because it's not, but it's become a creative tool that allows you to work with. You know, you don't have to have it right the whole way through. You can copy and paste parts, and, and, and you know, you really can do so much with it that it seems to detract from the end product sometimes. Yeah, that's yep. Yep. But I'm okay. I'm an old analog guy. But if I if I went into the studio today, I'd obviously use Pro Tools because that's what studios have. Yeah. You know. But but the thing is, I would try to think of it more as a storage medium mm -hmm. than than. And obviously, the repairs that I, you'd want to do can be done a million times easier. I mean, vocal comps. I prided myself through the years in being able to comp vocals beautifully. And the, and, and the things that we used to do when we used to have five or six vocal tracks that we would, you know, put together to make one lead vocal track, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the fun of planning that out and the different techniques we used to, to combine the tracks were, were amazing. Today, what, what you can do digitally makes that a ton easier. But man, I had a lot of fun doing it the old way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I I appreciate your insight on that. I mean, it is it is neat to, to I mean, it's fascinating to see where where we've come from. You know, since Elvis and the Beatles and things like that to now. But um, you know, your question. Another thing, another thing I gotta say, I don't think records sound at all better today by any means. I mean, I listen to the vocals. I mean, I, I listen to John Lennon. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anybody ever sounded better singing through a vocal mic than John Lennon, or prior to that, listening to Frank Sinatra from the from the fifties. You know, yeah. they're in front of their Neumanns or Sennheisers, man. And the lack of the lack of actually frequency response on the consoles and the machines actually enhanced the vocal, because mm -hmm. the vocal was in the area that the machines really could handle. You know, there was not a low, whole lot of deep bass, and there, were, there wasn't a whole lot of super high-end uh, stuff. It was the, the machines, though. But, you know, you listen to John Lennon singing, Happiness is a Warm Gun, man. That vocal does it for me. You yeah. know? Like, he's in your face. Today's records, man, the digitizing of everything, I don't know, is it better? <laughs> I don't know. The records just sound so manipulated and, yeah. and tuned, and, and, you know. 
some of it, you know, seems to almost be like an assault on your ears. You know, you look at, you know, when you, when you digitize, you know, a CD and you look at, you know, the waveform of it, there's just no space in it anymore. You know, you take Zeppelin two or something like that and you put it down to digital and you look at it and there's room for air. I guess maybe that's a, a novice term, but, you know, it, it breathes to me so much better than a lot of uh, modern music does, you know. And some mm-hmm. of it's obviously the songwriting, I mean, obviously. But, sure, um, sure. You know. Anyway, Richie, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Again, the Dust reissue uh, will be out in April, I believe the 16th. I could be wrong on the date, but I believe it's April 16th. will be out That's Legacy. It. And uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, man, this was a lot of fun, John, and uh, thank you for having me. It was great. I could talk about this stuff for, I mean, there ain't enough digital storage for me. (laughs) (laughs) That would be irony if I ran out of hard drive space. I I love it because I I, I lived it, and, uh, you know, it's a major, major part of my life, so I love talking about it, and thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. Land Shark Lager and Margaritaville Tequila present Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band. How many people want to Songs from St. Somewhere Tour. Thursday, July 18th. First Niagara Pavilion. One night only. It's five o'clock Tickets on sale now at Ticketmaster.com. All Ticketmaster outlets or charged by phone. Don't miss Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band. Presented by Margaritaville Tequila and Land Shark Lager. Have you ever listened to an album and thought to yourself, man, I could do so much better than that? Well, here's your chance. My name is Sue, and I've decided to write my next album live and online at RageAndApathy.com. So come on over, leave me a comment, and tell me what you think about the album and where you think it should go. And as a bonus for you Iron City rockers out there, I will give you an exclusive copy of the first song as soon as I get it finished. So stop on over to RageAndApathy.com and join my madness. All right, thanks to Richie Wise for taking the time out and indulging my questions on the recording industry. Uh, Richie, obviously a successful musician, but uh, obviously has made a living as a record producer, so it was really cool to talk to him. And now, uh, for the next gentleman up from the band Dust, we have Kenny Aronson. Aronson was the bass player of the band, but has gone on to play bass for many, many people. Uh, Billy Idol. Uh, one of my favorites uh, of the list, but uh, his resume is as long as my arm. Uh, so Kenny's a guy who uh, I thought would be interesting to talk to just, uh, you know, as I know many people who listen to this show are musicians, and it's always interesting to look at different ways to make yourself have a, a long career in music, you know, aside from having, you know, a platinum album and, you know, doing a massive tour when you're in your early 20s, but how do you make a career, a full-length career out of being a musician? Kenny Aronson is the, is the perfect example of how to do that. So, without further ado, we're going to play a little more off the uh, new Dust remaster, and we're going to talk to Kenny Aronson. Yeah. 
extraordinaire, Kenny Arison. How are you doing, Kenny? Oh, I'm doing great. Hey, um, we're on the eve of the reissue of um, kind of the called call it the complete recordings of the band Dust, which uh, featured yourself and, and Richie and, and Marky. Um, how how was it looking back at, at some of that material that you did so early on in your career? Um, it's really strange sometimes yeah. to me because when I listen back to that, um, I hear. Well, first of all, I hear a completely different musician. Mm-hmm. I hear a very young musician. Uh, I hear a group of people uh, creating something from a time when I would say, well, more innocent and a lot less rules, quote unquote, or parameters to have to worry about, or. Uh, you can't do this, this is just too busy, or this is just too, you know, just, uh, it was uh, just a freer, more innocent, uh, free-flowing, we just did what we had this passion and just did this thing, and we didn't think twice about what we were doing. We just Mm -hmm. did it, and, you know, damn the torpedoes, we didn't know anything one way or another other than the fact that along the trip that we took together until those records, you know, until we finally got signed to Buddha Kama Sutra and actually made those records, uh, there were a lot of rejections along the way. Sure. And, and, but in relating to the bands that we were inspired at the time, like Jimi Hendrix or Cream or The Who or... Yardbirds or whatever. I mean, people, you know, why, why were we getting so much resistance or being told you guys are too loud or we can't record ants this loud or we can't do this? There was a lot of, a lot of stuff that we, we knew that, no, there's gotta be a way we can do this. I mean, it is happening. I mean, it's why we're here because of the people I've already mentioned and, and yet, you know, there was all this resistance. Yeah, I mean, and we were, just, you know, it was like, well, you know, and we just pursued it though until it worked. I mean, thank God it worked, you know. Mm-hmm. Now you were what about nineteen or so when when you guys went into the studio on the first album? Yeah, something like that. Nineteen, yeah, nineteen twenty maybe. And had you guys done a lot of gigs as as a band prior to to doing the album? Or? Um, no, what we did was, well, in, in my memories of it all, I mean, yes, we did, we did some shows here and there. We, we played, you know, we used to play at this place in Brooklyn called the, uh, the Slapish Terrace, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Gaynor's Slapish Terrace, and we used to put on dust concerts there. And there would be other neighborhood bands that would be playing with us, and we would all borrow and use each other's amplifiers and just stack them up so they were literally almost to the ceiling. I mean, and uh, um, and we used to play the Prospect Park band show occasionally, and we played Ungano's Club out in Staten Island and just oddball places here and there. But really, in my memories of Dust, and this is 
you know, be, before the albums were ever made. This is before even the trio of, of, of Richie, Mark, and myself. This was the variations of dust that, that existed before that. We practiced all the time in someone's basement or sure. someone else's basement, but we rehearsed all the time. We were always practicing, always rehearsing. Uh, Richie and Kenny Kerner would be writing tunes, and, and we would just take them to the basement and work on them, you know. And eventually we were set free to do a gig, which, I don't know, didn't always go so well in my memories, but, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's the way I remember it. Yeah. It's kind of you know that is it's hard to believe it's been forty years since you know this this material kind of first saw the light of day. Well, I'm just blown away that that all this there's all this renewed interest in it. Yeah. At, at this point in time, I mean, and it's sort of, I mean, I, I wish it could have come earlier when I had maybe more clear memory of certain things. But you yeah. know, it's been so many years, and and so many things that I've done over so many years that. And and you know how memories can play tricks on you. You know, you Absolutely. think you remember things, and then you talk to somebody after years. You know, like like I was talking to Richie the other day, and I said, remember that Hendrix? Remember when we went to see Jimi Hendrix experience at the Fillmore, and Jimmy broke his guitar in half, and we both, and, and, and you and I and this friend of ours, we got the guitar, and we ran out of the exit door to Fillmore, and we put the guitar back together and realized it had been broken in half before <laughs> and nailed back together so Jimmy could break it again. And Richie went, that wasn't the experience. That was the band of Gypsies. Uh. And I was like, what? I, I thought it was the experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, so just stuff like that, you know, is crazy. Now, for Dust, I mean, obviously being an American-based uh, heavy metal band, or you know, even if heavy metal was a term at the time, I mean, you mentioned the Who, and I think especially in, in Mark's playing, uh, you can hear a lot of that. But I mean, as far as your influences, were, were people like Noel Redding or, or you know, uh, Ginger? Ba I'm sorry. Um, you know, like cream. Jack Bruce. Yeah, Jack Bruce. I know what you go. Well, first of all, let, let me let's digress for one moment, Certainly. and 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 I want to say something because there's all this stuff being said about being heavy metal and proto metal and mm -hmm. this early proto metal American band. I'll be honest with you. From my memories back in the day, I did not know the term heavy metal back then. Mm -hmm. I thought we were a hard rock band. Mm -hmm. I never considered us heavy metal. To me, heavy metal, when I think of it, and and you know, I'm sure there'll be a thousand people that'll well say, "Oh, you come on, you're full of crap." But to me, metal, uh, I, I, to me, dust was was more experimental, and and there was more variation of music going on with what we were trying to do then, then I would say that you'd find in a typical metal band. I mean, we were messing around with strings. I was playing dobros and steel guitars and lap steels and pedal steels. We, we were, you know, we were using pianos and Hammond organs. We, we did ballads. I mean, Kenny Kern and Richie Wise, I remember at the time, they loved the Bee Gees at the time. Mm -hmm. I used to go, oh, please, I couldn't stand them at the time. I love the Bee Gees now. I love orchestras and string sections. Sure. At the time, I wasn't really there. They were. We messed around with all that stuff. I don't think you're going to find that really in, in, in your atypical metal band, really. And 
I'll be honest with you. I don't remember the term metal really being in existence at that time. Yeah. And and to me, we were, we were a hard rock. I mean, I never thought of Zeppelin as a metal band. I no, thought I... Zeppelin is a, is a loud blues band. I mean, they were a hard rock band with with heavy blues influences. Yeah. And and Tull was not a metal band. That was an extremely intellectual rock band. Uh, but you know, and then as far as my influences go, well, I grew up on AM radio. I grew up hanging out in pizza places, listening to booming bass coming out of jukeboxes. So I was I was a a, a train wreck between Beatles, Motown, Yardbirds, early English rock, garage band. I mean, you know, the stuff that was happening at the day. Vanilla Fudge, I thought Timmy, Timmy Bogart was, was an incredible bass player at the time. And of course, as a kid, yeah, you wanted to play a million notes. I love busy bass players. Timmy, Jack Bruce, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, but I also loved the airplane at the time. Still, still this day, the first airplane record to me is one of the greatest records ever made. Jack Cassidy, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. I had a lot of varying uh, influences basis back in the day. And, of course, and Paul Samuel Smith from the Yardbirds. Yeah. But I was basically a train wreck between early English rock, Beatles, and Motown, and, you know, top 40. Yeah, well, I mean, I looking at, you know, as, as I mentioned before we ended the interview, your extensive resume, obviously your influences have taken you very far in this industry. Um, is, is there something in particular about your style of playing or maybe your ability to adapt to situations that has allowed you to work with so many varying artists over your career? Well, that's, that's, well, see, that's, that's the thing that I've thought about over the years. And basically my, my feeling about that is, is this, I could have gone, you know, if, if my luck had gone or if my, journey and whatever luck is, you know, it's all, you know, it's all the spokes and the wheel being there. It's just everything being in place. But I mean, if my journey took me to, took me to say the direction of uh, being Gene Simmons, mm-hmm. well, I would be in this hugely successful band and I'd have millions and millions of dollars and I'd have this thing but I wouldn't have the experience and I wouldn't be the musician that I feel that I am today. Now, I may not have the bank account to show it, but yeah. I wouldn't trade in anything that I've done for that because I've had, well, I've had the chance to play with some of the world's greatest guitar players. I mean, you're aware of my career, so I mean, from the beginning, I mean, after dust, and when I, I mean, the first, the first world-class rocket player, rocket top player I played with was Leslie West in 1975. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a few years after dust, yeah. and it went on from there with Derringer and and all the people I played with. You know, on the, you know, regardless of how famous they are, I played with amazing, amazing musicians. I've learned every, you know, I've learned so much from all of them. I mean, it was Leslie West. Well, Leslie West, I I love the guy. To this day, I still remember him yelling at me. We we were doing a gig, and we were doing, uh, we went into his version of Crossroads or something. Mm -hmm. 
And, of course, I had to try to play it like Jack Bruce. And Leslie sure. yelled it, and, and in that voice of his, he said, <laughs> uh, Ken, we don't need another fucking Jack Bruce in the band. <laughs> you know, this is, this is how you learn. I yeah. mean, so it's just, you know, every year, somebody else I'm playing with, something else I learn, somebody turns me on to other kind of music, and you go there, and then you, you listen to that, you absorb it, you know, I mean, it's, I'm influenced by lots of stuff, but I don't sit around my house trying to play like those people, because I'm never, I mean, I remember when Jacko hit the world, and I remember buying that first Jacko Pastorius record, and yeah. sitting there listening to Donna Lee, and listening to all this, and then, of course, I had to sit there and try to figure this out, and then... At the same time, every bass player you know is doing the same thing, and some and a lot of people were able to play like that. I mean, if I if I practice twelve hours a day, I'm never going to be that. It's not me. But what I do is, you know, to me, you just listen, you absorb, you take what you take, you regurgitate it. It becomes part of you. Regurgitate it. That's your style. I mean, it's it's, you know, you're 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 just. You know, I'm taking it in and I'm spitting it out in whatever that is that I do. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I think all those experiences that I've had with all these people over the years have enabled me to keep working because I think I can adapt to a lot of different situations. Mm -hmm. And I also feel very strongly about what I'm not so good at or what I prefer to do or what I'm not so comfortable doing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I think that experience and, uh, you know, lots of uh, just knowledge of what's going on and, and just being versatile. And also, I think um, I think I have a lot of res I, I consider myself a kind of person that has a lot of respect for the artists that I'm working with. And I play to serve the song. That is my philosophy. That, to me, is what it's all about. I think you have to uh, respect the role of your instrument. And, uh, but, I, I mean, obviously, every situation allows you to flourish in different ways. Some, some situations you can play more. Some situations, you, you know, you've got to play just what's needed. And I think you have to handle all that with a certain amount of grace. Because it's not about you, it's about the song, and it's the artist that's, that's, you know, paying you to be there. They hired you for a reason, and that to me is, is what it's all about in terms of what I do at this point in my life. I mean, I would say it might have taken me a while to get there, <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I feel I finally got there, and, and that's just my approach to it. Yeah, and that's and that's very well said. I think it's it's easy when you're you're a, a 19 year old, you know, a, a kid picking up the bass, picking up the guitar, the drums, whatever it is, to play as much as you can, and oh, you want man. your amp to be the loudest. And, and I think absolutely, yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. Thus, we were free for all. I mean, yeah, I mean, whatever Mark was whatever Mark was playing, I had to match it up the bass. I mean, it was like. And, and, you know, I remember when when, <laughs> when we got signed to Kamasutra, and I remember they gave us a check and said, go and buy the gear that you need. <laughs> and we went down to 48th Street in Manhattan, and uh, and I, I bought 
four, not one, not two, four acoustic 360s. <laughs> and I told Mark, and, you know, Mark got his Ludwig drums, and, you know, we were, you know, really into John Bottom, and I said, Mark, Bottom's using a 26-inch bass drum. Get a 28. And he ordered a 28-inch bass drum. One ladder. It had to be bigger, man. It is, you know, one more number ladder. You got to turn it up to a ladder, man. Yeah. Um, are, currently, are you still um, working with the New York Dolls, or is there anything on that horizon? Um, I am not working with the New York Dolls. The Dolls are pretty much inactive at this point. Okay. But I am actually this week, uh, actually tomorrow, I'm going to get together with Tommy Price and Sylvain. And we're going to throw around a bunch of new Sylvain tunes with the eye of doing some recording, actually, in the next few days, I think. Uh, Syl has been uh, doing a bunch of, a, of, of duo gigs with Glenn Matlock. So he's up in the area, and I really love Syl. He's a great guy, and I, and I like where, he, where he's coming from musically and stuff. So I said to him, I said, you know, we should all get together. We did a Tommy, Syl, and I, and... Uh, this guitar player, uh, Aaron Tajian from New York City, we did a New Year's Eve gig together. We had so much fun. We said, hey, we got to try to keep doing this. This is great. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to screw around with that this week. Sounds fantastic. Well, Kenny, I want to thank you again. The Dust Reissue will be available, I believe, it's April 16th. Um, and that's both uh, both your albums on one disc. A fantastic listen. It's it's really a, a fun look back, you know, 41, 42 years uh, back in time to listen to you know where you guys got, all got your start and obviously all, all three of you went on to uh, uh, you know quite a bit of success outside the band so it, it's fantastic to see and, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Together, an event forty years in the making. Leonard Skinner and Bad Company. Side by side in the summer's ultimate anniversary bash. Friday, July 19th, the first Niagara Pavilion. Special guest, Blackstone Cherry. Tickets on sale now. Buy at LiveNation.com or any Ticketmaster location. Leonard Skinnerd and Bad Company, the 40 Tour. All right, again, thank you to Kenny Aronson taking the time out of his schedule to talk to us. Uh, Kenny is an incredibly busy musician, which is one of the reasons I thought it would be cool to talk to him. I want to remind you again, Dust slash Heart Attack, uh, the two albums from the band Dust are available now on uh, one CD, will be available April 16th through Sony Legacy uh, Recordings, so you can pick those up at one price available on Amazon and pretty much everywhere. That band featured Richie Wise, who, as we talked to earlier, went on to produce Kiss and many other bands. Uh, Kenny Aronson, and also at the time, his name was Mark Bell. Mark uh, then was drafted by the Ramones uh, to work with them and spent many, many, many years with the Ramones up until the very end uh, as the drummer of the Ramones. And we don't have to tell you what the history and the legacy of the Ramones are. So without further ado, we'll play just a little bit more of Dust, and we're going to talk to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Marky Ramone.
talk a little bit about the band Dust and where it came from? Well, it was a Brooklyn group. We were three guys who uh, basically, two of us were in high school. Richie uh, was our friend, and we hung out, and uh, we decided to form a band, and uh, Richie already had Dust going, and he wanted me in the group, and the next thing you know, uh, uh, I, uh, we rehearsed, and uh, we did our first album. Uh, for Thomas Sutra Buddha Records. Okay. And uh, Richie and Kenny Carter uh, wrote the songs, and uh, and that was uh, the result, the first Dust album. And we were just basically uh, teenagers hanging out in uh, Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> yeah, now at the time, roughly how old were you at the time? This was, what, 1971, wow. the first album came Seven. out? Oh, 16, 17. Okay. Going, yeah. on, going on 17. And uh, we were uh, formed in 1970. Okay. So uh, we were one of the first heavy metal bands in America by far. So uh, we were very happy to know that because uh, we wanted to, not just the English, the great English bands, we, want, we wanted to introduce to America American metal. Uh, but we, we felt later on that we were really one on the right record label who made mm -hmm. a lot of bubblegum hits. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, we, if we would have had a more experienced manager, after the third album came out, I think we would have, uh, you know, uh, uh, hit it there, you know. But uh, we were happy just to uh, at least have put out these two albums. Yeah. And looking back, I mean, this is obviously this isn't music that you, you know, the name Marky Ramon, when people think of it, this isn't the style of music that people necessarily think about. But, you know, obviously, you know, growing up at 16, 17, I mean, what were you guys into at the time? I mean, obviously, Sabbath, I'm, I'm going to guess, but were there particular well, musical influences? Sabbath, Sabbath was out in 70. We, okay. we were ready together. Okay. So their, their first album came out in 69 in England. Okay. But we, we already wrote our songs before the album hit okay. America in 70. So what we did like was, obviously, Zeppelin, The Who, The Kinks, mm -hmm. uh, The Beatles. We liked uh, Jethro Tull. We liked uh, Cream. We liked uh, John Mayo's Blues Breakers. We liked um, 
let's see, some stuff that King Crimson was doing. Uh, there, there's just so many great things back then, you know. And then, uh, I mean, it, uh, the other side was I liked Phil Spector's stuff, that you know, all the stuff he, he produced, sure. and the great drumming on there. And, and then I guess you combine it, and the next thing you know, you have an omelet called Dust. Yeah, and you can, you know, when you mention some of those influences like Cream, uh, you know, and, and Keith Moon, for example, you can hear a lot of that in your playing, which is really kind of neat to listen back. Thank was, you. Was it enjoyable to kind of go back and revisit this, or is this music you just kind of put on the shelf and hadn't heard in a long time? Well, uh, I, I've i listened to it, and every time I do listen to it, I go, wow, I can't believe the stuff we were doing at such a young age. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's bands that were six, seven years, eight years older than us were doing the stuff uh, out of England. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were just young pups. Yeah. So uh, I listen back and I go, wow, you know, uh, I was very impressed at what I was doing at my age yeah. and what the other guys were doing. Uh, I mean, uh, we were just three kids out of Brooklyn. And here we are making a record. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, it was just—it was so quick, you know. Yeah. Now, when you guys took this on the road, uh, I know in the in the like there was a little bit of a teaser video that they put together on this project. You guys did do some touring with some bigger names, and, and you had some yeah. success in different parts of the country. Do you have any idea, you know, what exactly that draw was like for you know Detroit and places like that? A oh, thousands. Uh, you know, we 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 were always wondering. Uh, it was something special about the Midwest that loved us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the fans in the Midwest, uh, you know, they're, they're very selective. They're very mm -hmm. choosy, and they'll, and they'll let you know mm -hmm. what they don't like. Believe me, they're, you know, they're like, uh, they don't fuck, excuse the language, they don't mm -hmm. fuck around when it comes to the music. Sure. So, uh, you know, we, we were pretty big there, and uh, we started getting more shows and places and things, but uh, at that point, our manager, he wasn't really that experienced. And again, the record company really didn't know how to market us. Like, again, like I said, like an Atlantic or a Warner's or a, a Columbia. Right. Well, you know, whatever whatever catered to that genre of music. But uh, it was really a lot in the Midwest, New York. And uh, I guess if we continued touring, Mm -hmm. uh, who knows what would have happened? Yeah. Now, you released a second album just a year later, Heart Attack, um, with some, you know, obviously you can, you can feel a little bit of a jump in the songwriting. Um, and then you guys kind of, you know, called it a day. Um, and obviously everybody in the band went on to very successful careers outside. Was there something in particular that you guys decided to hang up dust, or was it just you, it wasn't doing you know? what you wanted to do and you got frustrated? Well, you know, there was no frustration. We we just decided to, you know, just go our separate ways. Uh, we were young. Uh, we uh, wanted to, to, to do other things. Uh, Kenny went on, uh, Richie went on to produce the two Kiss albums. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kenny Aronson became a very well-known sideman. And I ended up working with Andrew Oldham uh, from the Rolling Stones, their producer, mm -hmm. on an album for Columbia on a band out of the Midwest. Okay. So there was a lot of uh, uh, different uh, things that, that all three of us did at such a young age. Mm -hmm. But the Ramones thing came uh, in 78. That was so much later. you know. Yeah. But funny because I got a story here. Johnny and Dee Dee and Joey and Tommy, mm -hmm. they, were, they were friends, but they, were no, they weren't 
there was no Ramones yet, and they were in the audience when Dust would be playing in New York City because yeah. they would tell me that they saw me play and they loved the group, especially the album cover of the Skeletons. Uh, Johnny thought it really, you know, it blew yeah. him away when he saw that. So, you know, they, they were fans, members of the New York Dolls would be in the audience watching us because, again, we were in New York and we played the Village Gate. We played a lot of the places in the village. So these bands were really just forming. And then we just fizzled out. And, uh, you know, that was uh, the end of uh, the career of Dust. Now, in Brooklyn at the time, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the history of the Ramones has been well documented with CBGBs and, and the New York Dolls. Oh, yeah. but, but what was... What was the, the climate in, in 71, 72 in New York for a band like yourself? Were, were there contemporary bands of yours, or were you guys kind of just doing your own thing and, and everyone? We, uh, we, didn't, we didn't want to be part of that New York scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, were, we, we thought we were better musicians, and we thought that, uh, you know, we thought it was a cool scene, but we were already uh, basically more established than they were, so we, didn't, we weren't going to jump on any glam uh, glam rock bandwagon. We sure. went, we were sticking to our metal roots. But times were changing in New York overall with the glam scene and then the punk scene. Right. So, uh, you know, we, we, we were thinking more worldly, not yeah. just, uh, a CBGB band or a Max's Kansas City band. Sure. You know, we wanted to play the big stadiums around the country. We, yeah. that's what we were thinking. But uh, obviously, uh, it didn't happen, and I decided to uh, prowl and look around what was happening in CBGB's in New York City and see what bands uh, that were happening. And, you know, it was a whole new, totally the opposite yeah. of what I was doing in Dust. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I guess the question is, what, what kind of brought this reissue um, to light here in 2013? What was kind of the impetus? Did someone make a phone call, or did a record company kind of approach one of you guys? Well, I know the uh, guy who put it together. I met the president of uh, Legacy Sony, and okay. uh, he uh, wanted to do this. And I, I said, hey, you got me. I'm all for it. We uh, got the tapes. Uh, we we remastered them and uh, we uh, changed some of the artwork, but kept the original artwork in what we just re-released. We sure. and um, you know they were on board, which was which was uh, was good because you know when a company is interested, uh, you go for it because uh, sometimes you have to always. Uh, you know, ask what's going on, what's the story, but these guys were 100% behind it, and, you know, that that was really cool because it was a legit, it is a legitimate company. Yeah, and it's great, you know, to see some of these things, you know, when you look at this album now being 31, 32 years old, uh, for those that didn't get to, I'm sorry, 41 years before I'm dating myself now, but to, to look back, you know, a lot of this stuff could have gotten forgotten. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of, of the three of you collectively think your careers kind of started with the Ramones and Kiss and, you know, Kenny's, yeah. uh, you know, career yeah. as, you know, he's played with everybody, I think, on earth, it seems. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's great to look back and get some of these because this is a really great recording, you know, to Thank go back and listen to. It. Um, do you stay in touch with Kenny and Mark or has time kind of drifted you guys to different parts of the globe? Uh, well, I run into him occasionally. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're both busy. Um, uh, now that this has happened, 
who knows where this this could lead. I mean, there'll never be a Dutch reunion, mm-hmm. but uh, at least it's on vinyl and CD. Yeah. So uh, you know, there there is a camaraderie, and uh, I guess we'll continue that now, knowing that everybody's on the same page. You know. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Marky, I want to thank you so much for taking the time on uh, your busy time. schedule. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Together, Sticks, Mario Speedwagon, Ted Newton, come take a ride on the Midwest Rock and Roll Express, May 19th at First Niagara Pavilion. Long tickets just $10 plus charges this weekend. Get tickets at LiveNation.com or Ticketmaster Outlets. All right, a big thanks to all the members of Dust for taking the time out of their schedules to come on the show. Absolute thrill to talk to as a Kiss fan, Richie Wise, huge Ramones fan, Marky Ramone. So it was a real pleasure uh, to do this episode. Uh, I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen. It's a little bit long episode this time around. Again, the epi- the album, I should say, Heart Attack Dust, is available on the 16th of April through Sony Legacy. It's available for a mere 12 bucks at Amazon.com. I'm sure it'll be similarly priced through iTunes. So get yourself a copy. Uh, it's really a pretty cool album to listen to. When I listened to it, the the uh, impression I got it reminded me a lot of the Edgar Winter group. Um, so if you're a fan of that kind of classic rock, uh, certainly a very cool one. And it's a band that you know probably many of us have never heard you know, of, of my generation. So it isn't a you know it's kind of cool to get some classic rock that you're not sick of you know as we all know we get to hear Frampton and, and Led Zeppelin and some stuff so much that it becomes almost annoying. Well, this is kind of cool to go back and listen to something that's it's fresh but forty years old. So uh, really recommend you check it out. And I want to thank you for listening. You can find us at IronCityRocks.com, Facebook.com forward slash IronCityRocks, and Twitter.com forward slash IronCityRocks. And you can find us at the castironring.com, our brotherhood of metal and hard rock podcast. You can get us on the iTunes uh, store. You can get our apps for Iron City Rocks Connect, which will keep you abreast of all things going on with the show. And you can get the Cast Iron Ring application as well, both of which are free. Uh, you can subscribe to Iron City Rocks on iTunes, leave a comment, a post. And we appreciate any and all feedback through ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Till next time, thank you so much.